0: Hello, and welcome to Eagle Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast. Our podcast series focuses on the most important topics in alternative data with industry-leading experts as featured guests. Your hosts are Eagle Alpha subject matter thought leaders who lead these lively and informative discussions. Please enjoy this and all episodes of Profiting from Data.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast from Eagle Alpha. My name is Brendan Furlong, hosting today with Option Metrics. So we're going to get into into the weeds on the option side. With me, I have Garrett from Option Metrics. Garrett, if you want to just do a quick intro for yourself and then we can
0: kind of take it from there. Hi Brendan, thank you for having me. My name is Garrett e. Simone. I am the head of quant research at Option Metrics. We are based in New York City and we are a options data and analytics firm. So our primary products are end-of-day options values as well as calculations, so the the Greeks and implied vols, delta gamma theta vega on the U.S., European, Asian markets, as well as a suite of analytical options tools we provide to our clients. And some of our clients are major investment banks, hedge funds, regulators, and we have a large academic pool as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. So, normally, when I'm hosting these podcasts, I kick off with the LinkedIn profile, So when looking at your LinkedIn profile, I normally try to find a bit of an anomaly or something strange in in the profile that, you know, how did you get from here to there sort of thing. But looking at your profile, deep math and econometrics, PhD in financial economics, and then straight into options. So tell me a little bit about that, how you went from PhD into six years now, over six years now at option metrics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I did my PhD in financial economics at the University of Delaware, and I used option metrics data there for my dissertation. Not to bore you too much on the nerdy dissertation part, but I did mine on delta neutral straddle returns around macro news, which is making a pretty big comeback lately with how important CPI has become in FOMC news. So it's it's become pretty relevant now. But it was a very natural fit for me because I was a end user of the product. And then my first career at a grad school was at Option Metrics, and I'm still here now.
1: So sorry, going back to getting into the, the nerdy weeds, a little bit, it's kind of interesting. The You used macro, basically on spreads, how the, basically the macro markets can move the options market. Is that it?
0: So what we looked at was essentially, we created a delta neutral straddle, which is supposed to be a pure trade on volatility risk and jump risk. And we studied how the returns of these straddles on SPX pay off on macro news days compared to other news days, but compared to no news days. And what we found is a lot of what we see delta neutral losses actually occur on this small percentage of days during the year. So if you're a delta neutral straddle buyer, your long volatility, long gamma risk, which is notoriously a losing trade, But what we found is that a lot of these losses accrue on just these days during the year and are nearly zero on everything else. And then the FOMC was actually a very special one. We found that the FOMC returns were actually positive for delta neutral straddles, which was an interesting result.
1: Okay, interesting. That's kind of cool, yeah. You didn't think we wanted again to weeds, but why not? So, <laughs> so we're the, here now, yeah, right? So you're bringing a lot of your academic background to option metrics and the pricing of options. I guess you know from theory. I think it was back in the '70s, late '70s, maybe early '70s, in terms of Black Scholes models, etc. Explain one of the key things of the Black Scholes models is is beta you guys have been doing some interesting work lately with beta calculations or adjusted beta calculations. So a little a little nerdy, but it is important, obviously, for options, if you could explain that to me, what you guys are doing and why, why you think it's important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to separate, because you touched on two things there, Brendan. So our primary flagship product is the options data from for indices and single-name securities, and we do that in U.S., Asia, Europe, Canada. We provide that, and that is our flagship product. So if we have a European-style option, it's priced in the same way traditionally, like Black Shoals, like you just mentioned. And for our American style, we use trees. But what I've seen in the market and what my, my team has noticed is there's, with these surging volumes in options, there's been a greater demand for Option based analytics and signals from the options market. So this moved us to work on a implied beta indicators. So traditional beta from introductory finance is a measure of a stock's systematic risk. So a stock with a beta of two, you could say if the market goes up by 1%, we'd expect that stock to increase by 2%, right? We have found that this measure, it's a bit dated. So our approach is to take options-based correlations and options-based volatilities and essentially derive what the option market expects beta to be or an implied beta.
1: Okay. Okay. So to some extent, my basic understanding of it is, was looking at the volatility of stock price to looking back in in time, looking back in history to get the beta. And then that beta was used to help one piece of the pricing of the option. But now you're saying you're actually looking at the volatility of the option to get the beta. Am I reading that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So historically you would look at like the covariance, the historical relationship between a stock and the market. Now we're interested in the forward information, or the implied information and options to get a better expectation of what the market expects beta to be.
1: Hmm. Okay. Very good. And can that expected beta or adjusted beta be used beyond the options market to the the market itself, the equity markets?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the applications we've looked at is if an investor is looking to, let's say, beta neutralize their portfolio and you used implied betas, you would actually create a better beta neutral portfolio. So, closer to zero if you scaled your weights let's say, an investor is building a factor. One of the research papers we actually released related to implied beta is we took this notion of betting against beta, which has been around for about a decade or so, at least academically, and said, let's take our implied betas and see how it performs. And when we built this betting against beta factor, which is essentially buying low beta stocks because they're supposed to have a higher alpha relative to high beta stocks, we found that Implied beta actually enhances this factor significantly.
1: So your your applied basically adds alpha. Potentially, somebody could add a lot of alpha to their to the process. Essentially,
0: exactly. And this technique we use, it's just we're pulling information that's available in the options market instead of looking backwards. Gotcha, gotcha.
1: Last thing on the pricing of options, just as a, I guess, from my own kind of interest here on this, looking at the black, the classic Black Scholes model. There's various inputs to it. But the risk-free rate of interest is a key component. But the so-called risk-free, you know, based on U.S. treasuries, essentially, but that's been essentially went to zero for the last few years. It's after coming back now. How do you, as a theoretical approach to that, when the risk, in my day, it was the risk-free rate of interest is 5%, and you plug 5% into the model or into the pricing. But now, you know, it went to zero. How do you, over time, adjust
0: for the change in the risk-free rate Previously, we used a LIBOR input. LIBOR was actually retired very recently. So I took it upon my team to search for, let's look at an options-based solution to this because you can actually pull out what the risk-free rate of lending is from the options market. So what my team did is we looked across our major indices and we did a trade called a box spread, which essentially isolates what the risk-free payout would be to this combination of options portfolios. So for each major region, let's say we're looking at US, we would take a payoff of a box spread on the SPX and we would derive out a option market-based risk-free rate. So we actually don't depend on three-month treasuries or LIBOR. We take the option market expectation about what the risk-free rate is going to be. And we find this actually leads to more accurate option volatility and pricing and keep itself contained within the options market.
1: Okay. Oh, very good. Okay. So something else I've learned today. Uh, very good. Very good. So moving on from the actual nitty gritty of pricing options and applied betas and whatever. The options market, I guess even going back to the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, was a playground, if you want to call it that, of institutional investors. And COVID, meme stocks, you know, what have you, seems to have changed that somehow. So what's your, the last
0: five years or last five
1: to 10 years, How's the option market changed?
0: I think we've seen really an explosion of volume, and a lot of that interest has come, at least from the retail side, during this COVID period and these run-up in meme stocks. But one of the things I've noticed when discussing with clients is the option market began as a very small part of the financial derivatives world. But now we see some relationships where stock price would drive options prices, but we see almost like a tail wagging the dog scenario where option prices can now drive stock prices. And this is the famous gamma gravity or gamma effects that originated meme stocks. And we we saw some discussion during the COVID period, but it's where the market maker's behavior in options can actually drive stock returns or stock volatility in the short term just based on their hedging. So that's been an analytic tool a lot of our clients have discussed with us or are interested in.
1: Yeah, so on that gamma trade where, I guess, the market makers have basically been forced because of the day traders, let's call them that for sake of argument, are buying near term, out of the money, puts and calls and whatever, making a bet. And the option of the market makers forced to go out and hedge that off, doing things because of the crazy volume, doing things they don't hadn't necessarily done before, that in turn has other knock-on effects, I would imagine, does it?
0: Right. Absolutely. So it's it's essentially if we look at how the market makers are positioned that and in options terms, we call it like their book exposure, whether it's negative gamma or positive gamma. And based on how they're positioned, they may be forced to sell to rebalance into falling markets, which creates a sort of spiral effect of higher volatility, continued selling if you look at the other direction, it could be that they have to buy to maintain their delta neutral book, in which case prices keep rising and rising. So it's sort of an exacerbating effect for the underlying stock, which is not something that was really discussed or thought about five or 10 years ago, that it could be happening at this scale.
1: I wonder how that feeds into the thought of rational markets. But anyway, I won't go there. Might be going <laughs> a step too far. The classic sentiment indicator over the years has been put-call ratios and what have you. But with the day trader meme stock and now the market makers having to react and delta neutral hedge and whatever, is the put-call ratio of any value or is it just like it's just nonsense at the stage?
0: So this is another topic we've received a lot of questions on and put the the put-call ratio It's still a popular indicator on message boards. You got a major news websites, they'll still show it. It's reached an all-time high. What we found in our research shows, it's its not really much of anything. People treat it as a contrarian indicator sometimes, but we have no real research to show that other than anecdotally. But what a measure we found and that's built off a part of our data is a buy ratio based on calls, puts and calls. So instead of looking at the raw volume, which is just total put volume over total call volume, we're more interested in what the sign of these trades are. And this is built off of our sign volume product. So what we'll do is we'll say, what is the total number of put buys relative to the total number of call buys? And we find this is a, a better indicator of short-term performance than just the raw ratio based on volumes. So this, sorry, explain that to me a little again. So the sign volume product that you
1: have It's used for short-term, is this kind of a short-term indicator, like a couple of days, or is it like a week or two, or how should we look at that?
0: The measure, the put-call-buy ratio that we've developed and worked on, it's based on sign volume, which takes, we step through trades throughout the day, and we assign whether that trade is likely a buy or sell order. So we're able to aggregate all the trades, yeah.
1: Okay, sorry. So it's, it's like an intraday signal type of thing.
0: So we provided end of day, we are looking towards a more intraday signal for to update our frequency. But what we found is this prediction whether we have more call buying relative to put buying, you get predictive power from a week up to a month sometimes as opposed to the the raw volume, which includes option buying and selling. It's just not there. The predictive power isn't there.
1: I see. Understood. Okay. Very interesting. We talked about the retail trader, day trader. I keep going back to day trader instead of meme stock trader. But anyway, <laughs> day trader has you know has obviously changed the market. both on the equity side volumes, but on the option market as well. But on the institutional side of the options market as things have evolved over the decades and people have gotten, it's gone from academic research to real trading. how has the institutional side of the market changed over the years or has it, or is it just
0: everybody's clued in and it is what it is right now? We, we see our clients over the years have become more and more sophisticated regarding options. It's become more of a tool in their toolbox regarding various strategies or portfolio overlays a type of way of uh, harvesting another alternative risk premia in let's say if they're har- interesting harvesting um, volatility premia so our clients have really expanded their use of options in their day to day I would say and the tools they demand are also have become more and more sophisticated too part of our offering is a volatility service, and that is one of the biggest requests we were get is can you show me your volatility surface? We would like to price out a 30-day option, for example. So that's something that our clients have been looking for, and they they continue to add options to their to their offerings.
1: So for the non-educated amongst us or whatever, including myself here on this one, so the option surface, explain, maybe give it a layman's interpretation of what that option surface means.
0: Sure, absolutely. So when we think about looking at option prices. Typically, on a, on a given day, you may have an option that expires in 15 days, an option that expires three months out. But a lot of our end users and our customers want to look at this in a normalized fashion. So they want to see what a hypothetical 30-day option that's at the money, what the volatility of that would be. And that's what the volatility surface is able to extract out. So we were able to say, okay, if, if there were to be... Exist a 30 day option every single day. This is the volatility of it. This would be the delta, the gamma of it. We, and we're able to do that across different tenors as well as different deltas.
1: Okay. So it's basically the mispricing. The police are coming via there. But anyway, we blast through the, the sirens. Are these sophisticated, the most sophisticated hedge funds, quant funds out there using this? Or is there even plain vanilla? funds who want to you know offload some of the risk by you know selling calls or what have you to get a little bit of extra alpha or is it just the most sophisticated people doing it?
0: It's all types of funds. So you you may some of our customers are funds that are running yield harvesting strategies that involve selling covered calls or forming some sort of protective put strategy by selling out of the money puts as hedges. And then you have Part of our customers are some of our hedge funds, which are running very sophisticated option strategies, which they don't even like to share with me. <laughs> so yeah. that's their secret sauce.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess on that option surface kind of topic, is there any examples you could share beyond you know the guys who don't, they don't share with me either what they're doing, but what do you think are kind of the best use cases of the options data? I think just looking at it myself internally here, just, you know, the last week or so, net buying pressure, option applied analytics, you know, those type of things. will have people, you know, what that means and how people can think about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most useful indicators we found in terms of understanding the pricing of options from our surface is the implied volatility skew. So what the implied volatility skew measures is the pricing of out-of-the-money puts relative to out-of-the-money calls. So when the skew is very large, it indicates there's a lot of fear regarding crash risk because investors are paying significantly more for puts relative to calls. When we see that surface shift for single name stocks and the calls become more expensive, then there's a lot of exuberance regarding the upside. So if you looked at like GameStop during its meme phase, you would see a large call skew because investors were buying for the upside as opposed to hedging downside risk. And we find that for single name stocks, the skew is actually a pretty good indicator of future performance. So stocks that are have a large skew tend to not do so well around earnings or on a weekly to monthly basis. Is that just a classic crowded long, crowded short type of thing? Too high expectations, crowded long type of thing? So we find it's it's more driven by information, actually. So especially around earnings, stocks that have a lot of Put buying or expensive puts tend to outperform, and this is from informed trades, essentially buying up the put side of the options.
1: Hmm. Okay. So overly bearish coming into a quarterly call, let's say, and then there's a bit of short squeeze, a bit of covering. Is that it? I, I would
0: describe it simply. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would think that's about that. My apologies. No, that's okay. I would say we've got, let's say, like an earnings event coming up. And we see that the skew has been rising steadily two, three days into earnings. That would be a signal to me that we have a lot of pessimism around the earnings event. so it may be a stop to avoid. It may be a short play, but it would indicate that there's a lot of at least on the the option side there's a lot of traders piling into the the puts or they're willing to pay for puts
1: willing to pay for puts. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm still confused. But anyway, I'll move on. I would have thought if if you're paying, if you're overpaying for puts, you really want to get these puts because you think the stock's going to blow up. But then, if that doesn't happen, then the stock obviously goes the other way potentially.
0: Right. The the way I would like to think about it is if we assume that there's some information embedded in the options that has not already been reflected in the stock, then the, the skew is a good indicator for us. So it's like saying. We've got a bunch of options. I'm not saying there's insider information, but we've got a bunch of option investors that really understand the company. They're going to buy puts on it because they know earnings are going to turn out poorly.
1: Right, yeah. Well, back to the, the our fishing market hypothesis again, which we're going to sidestep. Something that's been in the news recently, obviously, just for a practical example maybe, and I don't know if you've seen any options pricing on a media lately, Stocks obviously gone parabolic, high expectations going into the quarter last week, the blue numbers out again by its sound of things. But any insight there in terms of what the options market was saying last week heading into NVIDIA, just for a practical use case?
0: Yeah, so it, it was very interesting. We were looking at another useful way of utilizing options is we can actually price out what the options market expects the earnings move to be. Based on the straddle prices. So that's if we looked at the combined price of a call and put around the earnings date, we can ascertain that what the option market expects the move will be in either direction. So prior to the earnings move on NVIDIA, it was pricing in about 11%, which was significantly larger than the past implied moves between seven, eight percent. Interestingly enough, it didn't even get anywhere close. I think it finished maybe what two, right? Which indicates that if someone buying straddles into this earnings would have just pretty much been blown out of their position, came up with nothing. But another finding we've been researching too is there's been increased retail volume in the video. So we think this is definitely a contributing factor to the the higher premiums we're seeing the higher implied moves we're seeing around the earnings states.
1: Is there any way of discounting or removing the retail trader impact on like Let's say it's a meme stock or it's a mini meme stock in NVIDIA at the moment. Is there any way of removing that from the calculations so you're looking at so-called smart money or institutional?
0: Yeah. So one of the measures we actually use is we're able to look at lot sizes for trades so this serves as a proxy for institutional investors. But what we find is if we remove the lot size bin, that's 1 to 10, which serves as a retail proxy, that will give us the remaining institutional trades or institutional volume. But can
1: you adjust the, the Greeks as well, or is it just the volumes? No, it would just be the volumes in this case. Yeah, yeah. So the Greeks still be distorted, though, going into the call, essentially.
0: Right. It would be as though you've got this portion of market in case there's retail traders willing to pay more, which increase the price of premiums and therefore increase the price of call and put options into oh, the earnings. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a weird dynamic with how the retail investors has impacted the market. But anyway, a couple of other things here before we're getting up on, t- on time. The options market is pretty competitive. I guess, simple question on the competition side for you
0: versus your competitors why Option Metrics? What's your USP or why do you stand out? Yeah, so Option Metrics has been around for over 20 years. And as an end user myself, before I even arrived at Option Metrics, we have a very strong academic base. It's very difficult to get a paper published in the option space and not using Option Metrics data. So we have this long established history of reliable calculations, and our customers have been in business and trust us for a very long time. We have a very skilled QA team. We're very responsive. And we also, you know, we listen to the market in the sense that if a customer comes to us with a request or is looking for a new type of analytic, we're able to understand and, and act on that to deliver what they're looking for.
1: Okay, very good. I mean, it is it's a very complex area and I presume you're talking to people who are deep into weeds but I mean we do have clients come to us you know who are getting in the game if you want to call it that in terms of alternative data and flows and you know options and it's, it's good to know how one particular vendor stands out versus the other. The last thing I have for you is to, before we go is you referred at the, at the beginning of the conversation about you know Europe and Asia and I would imagine you're, you're probably heavily skewed to, excuse the terminology, to the U.S., but any sort of insight on European and Asian markets in terms of how options are being traded in the last four or five years or any insight on non-U.S. market, put it that way?
0: So we've, we've actually seen similar demand for our European and Asian products as well. So it's almost a situation as if this rising options tide has risen everything across all the regions. But what we'll typically see is we've got a customer that is interested in our U.S. products and they build a trust with us and, they're, and they'll are set, and they say to us, all right, we're ready to see Europe or we're ready to see Asia now. But the rise in popularity of options has really spread to European and Asian markets as well. Do
1: they have the, the depth and the liquidity of the U.S. markets or is it it's a work of progress?
0: Compared to the U.S. markets? Yeah, yeah. We found that the liquidity is a little bit less, but it's a double-edged sword in the sense that the markets where there's a little bit less liquidity are also have a higher potential for alpha. So what we've seen is a lot of very, I won't call them common, but option strategies that are run are kind of factor-based strategies. And a lot of our clients will look to apply those to the European or Asian markets to seek additional sources of alpha. So while you have low liquidity on one end, there's more opportunity, I would say.
1: I see. As long as you enter gently into the market and you don't move the market too much. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's been a pleasure talking. It's an interesting topic. And certainly over the last, since the, the meme stock craze or whatever, the options markets have changed. And it's good to get an update on how everything's shifting and how institutional investors and market makers are getting impacted by everything. So appreciate the conversation and
0: thank you very much again. Thank you for having me on, Brennan. It was a pleasure. Cheers. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.